0: NBC's critically acclaimed television series, The Good Place, couches an exploration of ethics and philosophy in a comedic storyline. And if you have not seen this film, I apologize that, or these, this series, I apologize because I'm probably going to give something away here. But in, in this TV series that's exploring ethics and philosophy in a, in a comedy, really, individuals wake up after death in what they believe to be the good place. The good place is not a precise replica of the traditionally imagined heaven, but it's definitely the opposite of the bad place, which is perhaps based on some misguided conceptions of hell. So individuals wake up in the good place, but they know that they don't belong there. They remember their previous life, their moral failings, and so now they're in a predicament where they don't want to leave the good place, but they can't let anyone know that, they don't deserve to be there. So they must hide their past moral failings and they must find a way to become a better person. They need to increase their good points score so that they can stay there, so that they can belong there. The only catch is this. The good acts that you do, if they're motivated to stay in the good place and not to be genuinely virtuous and good and loving and kind, results in no gain In your virtue score, and it gets you no closer to belonging in the good place. Well, this TV series was really widely received in our culture, and I think it points out that common to our humanity is the question: Can I be a better person? And and it points out that we have this desire to be a better person, not only in this life, but to belong with the good people in the next life, whatever that might look like, and whatever that might take. Well, Christians watch this show, and we find some level of humor there because of the way Christianity is portrayed at times. But we also understand that these are real questions, and these questions come up as we explore Ephesians 5. This matrix of the future and the present in the life of virtue comes into play with Paul's very opening instruction in Ephesians 5.1, where he tells us to be imitators of God. Well, that command seems just as likely to be obeyed in this life as it is for the characters in the good place to earn their place there. How can we imitate God? In fact, that language strikes us as odd. It's uncomfortable. If someone's imitating God, don't they have a God complex? Should we not try to imitate God? Imitate Paul as Paul imitates Christ? Yes. Be Christ-like? Yes. But be God-like? Imitate God, that strikes us with a bit of mystery and confusion. But then as the text goes on, Paul lists some particular sins, including sexual immorality and greed, and declares that individuals who practice these things have no place in the real good place, in in the kingdom of God. Worse yet, he declares that the wrath of God is coming against the disobedient. So how do we read this text and how do we think of ourselves in light of this text? Well, like many of you, I've heard these verses preached as standalone verses in a way that probably tends more towards inducing guilt and fear and anxiety about the future than anything else. And when we look at these verses, apart from the storyline that Paul puts them in, I think that's the inevitable result. We we read about sin, we know we're a sinner, and we know of the wrath of God and know that we don't measure up. So we feel like those characters in the good place who try to hide their moral failings and just try to be a better person to belong there. So I want to propose that we need to read this text in a different way. We need to read this text in the storyline that Paul has given us. And, and what I tried to demonstrate last week is that Paul is structuring his whole letter of Ephesians based on the book of Exodus and really the Pentateuch at large. And as you can see on the slides, we need to place these verses in the story of redemption that Paul is giving us. So he began by talking about the redemption that we have from sin. The, The new life that we have in Jesus Christ is the new humanity, the new nation, the new people of God who now reside as God's temple. God dwells in us by his spirit. And having established this new identity and this new salvation that's a gift of grace from God that we could never earn or deserve, Paul then gives us the law code. He then gives us the law of Christ that instructs us how to live as God's people in community with one another. And it's at this point that we need to understand Paul's words condemning sin and talking about our relationship to God as those who, whether we want to admit it or not, Commit these exact sins. So, what I want to do is to walk through this text. I'm going to read the whole thing so that it's in our minds. But I want us then to hone in on a particular part of the Pentateuch story, the very beginning of creation. Because what Paul is doing in this text, as he talks about sin and separation from God and the wrath of God, he's really just mirroring the very beginning of humanity. And and we need to hear these instructions and these warnings in light of that story. But follow along, if you will, as I read Ephesians 5, 1 through 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality, and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you, as is proper for the same. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For know and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ, and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible, for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you we read this text paul is going to bring us through different movements understanding the nature of the church and the relationship of Christians to God but he begins by outlining the identity of the church as the image of God and this is where we need to go back to the book of genesis and if you're familiar with the opening account of the bible we we get the creation account where the first man and woman are created in the image of God I might need some help advancing the slide back there, but we, we, when we read this first creation account of the first humanity, in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, they're recorded as being created in God's image and likeness. That is to say, they are intended to reflect and represent God on the earth. Now, interestingly, when God creates mankind in his image and likeness, It's not just the individuals who are images of God in isolation or in their individuality, but it's together. In the image and likeness of God, he created them. So it is true that every human being is created as an image bearer of God, but humanity together is in a sense a more vibrant and full image of God. The likeness of God is conveyed more fully and thoroughly in humanity together in a way that's not possible in humanity alone. So these individuals, as image bearers of God, are intended to reflect God's presence and to represent him as something like vice regents or lower-level kings under the high king on the earth. And so they're commissioned to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And as they do so, images of God will populate the entirety of creation. Having created the first humanity in his image, God gives them instructions for living in the covenant community, for living in a covenant relationship with God, and living in relationship with one another. Now, the text of Genesis does not give us every particular instruction that Adam and Eve might have received. We can Read of one, the prohibition against eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you can also imagine that there are other stipulations or other violations of the covenant that would be possible. For example, it would have been wrong or a breaking of the covenant for Adam to have murdered Eve. So we understand that there are prohibitions and guidelines for life in the covenant community that we might not read of in the text, but as we understand the nature of God and the nature of life together, there are instructions to live together that will cultivate flourishing and life with one another and life with God. But the first humanity was deceived with empty arguments. And so they broke those instructions for covenant community, they broke that law code, and as a result, they were exiled from the garden for their sin. Now, as we turn to the book of Ephesians, we see all of this in parallel if we have eyes to see it. And this is one of the reasons it's really important for all of us to be reading the Old Testament because people like Paul knew the Old Testament really, really well. And it informed the way that they talked about our life now. And I think it informs the way we ought to consider our relationship with God and with the church, with one another. And if we're attentive to the Old Testament narratives, we see them popping up again or being recapitulated in the New Testament. So as you can see on that chart, there's a flow in our text that begins a little bit earlier but continues through where the church is represented as the new new humanity. So in Ephesians 4.24, Paul said that the church, this new humanity, is created according to the likeness of God in all righteousness and purity of the truth. And these individuals, much like the first humanity, are called on to imitate God. What is reflecting and representing God but imitating Him? Not acting as God, but imitating Him. And then Paul gives instructions for the community of image bearers, instructions for proper living that would rightly represent and reflect God. And then in verse 5, there's a warning of exclusion from the kingdom of God for breaking these covenant laws for breaking the way of being that God prescribed. So as we couch these instructions within that narrative framework, I think it will become more clear as we look at these verses individually. So the church as a whole, not just individual members, but at large, are instructed to be imitators of God as dearly loved children. So let's be clear We imitate God because we're already children. And so this removes a reading of this text that says you become children by imitating God. You don't become a child by imitating your father. You, Because you are a child of your father, look like him or act like him. He says, as dearly loved children, be imitators of God. How? Verse two, by walking in love, as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. So the church, the new humanity, the new image of God ought to imitate him in this way, by walking and living in love and a love modeled on Christ himself. So when we think about what it means to imitate God, we think of texts that talk about the fact that God is invisible. He's never been seen. How do we imitate him? Well, Paul answers that for us by saying, if you want to know what God looks like and how to imitate him, you look at Christ. Christ who loves, who gives of himself, who offers himself up on behalf of others. So it's only by looking at Jesus Christ, God incarnate, that we can know how to imitate God. And in fact, by looking at Christ we start to get the directive for our way of living because we understand him to be the true humanity. We can become more fully human or realize, actualize our identity as humans, as a new humanity, when we pattern that life on the true human, God incarnate, Jesus Christ. As we look at Christ and understand that what it looks like for us to be imitators of God is to live in a way that's defined by self giving and sacrifice, infused with love and modeled on Christ, we can better understand why Paul would list the sins that he lists in the next verses. He writes, But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. So Paul lists these sins, and and what we're to understand is that these are sins that are not only going to destroy the life of the community, but actually they're the kind of sins that are antithetical to the new humanity that we are. They're the kind of sins that make us less human. So sometimes when we hear these verses talked about, I think we can hear them as these, these sins are just awful, and if if you pursue them, um, you're you're just a bad person. And and I think we could say yes, that's true, but it doesn't go far enough, does it? When we sin, that's certainly evil and wrong and bad. But it's not just bad because these are arbitrarily bad things. These sins are evil because they're dehumanized. They make us less like God. And our humanity does not have life in itself. It only has life in God. And these kinds of sins distort the life that we have in God, and they make us less human. So when Christians and churches and pastors speak against sexual immorality and impurity and greed, it's not an arbitrary list of confinement. Instead, it's a warning against those things which will make you less alive, which will make you less fully alive human. I think it's instructive for us to think about these things in this way because it changes the way that we talk about these sins in our church community and with our friends and neighbors and as we look at our wider world. I think most of us would recognize that our wider culture is a sexually immoral culture. It's driven by sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is not only, you know, tolerated but praised. And I think that sometimes we can respond to that by raging against the sexual immorality with almost a tenor of hate that is itself not life-giving, but life-taking. So when we speak to people about sexual immorality, I think we need to calibrate it to why sexual immorality is wrong and bad and unhelpful. And it's because it's dehumanized. That sin of sexual immorality and immorality, impurity as a whole, I think deserves special attention and notice because it's contrasted here with walking in love. These are sins that are marketed or um, talked about as if this is the expression of love. And I would suspect that one of the reasons Paul lists these things here is because they're actually antithetical to love. Because sexual immorality and impurity do not involve a self giving and an offering of the self to the other, but actually a feasting on the other, a taking of the other for one's own pleasure and design. So we look at these sins and we rightly say these are antithetical to God, but by being antithetical to God, they're antithetical to our own flourishing and humanity. But we can't. Look at sexual immorality and impurity alone as the only sins that are dehumanized. Notice that Paul adds to this list, or not even adds, but finalizes this list with greed. Once again, greed is a sin that's antithetical to our humanity and antithetical to a Christ-like imitation of God because it involves not a self-giving, but a pursuit of everything for our own gain. So where Christ gave of himself for us in a sacrificial way, greed denies any propensity for sacrifice and self-giving, but instead demands others to sacrifice for us. It, It looks at other people as obstacles in our way to what we want, or it looks at people as objects to facilitate the gaining of what we want. And by treating our fellow humans as obstacles and objects, We not only dehumanize them, but we dehumanize ourselves as we break down the community that's necessary for flourishing and life in the imitation of God. So this list is one that we must attend to, but we must understand why it's so harmful for us, and it's because it's dehumanizing. It takes away the essence of our image-bearing identity. Paul goes on to continue this by talking about obscene and foolish talking or crude joking that are not suitable. Now, these things are um, somewhat hard to define because these words are not used commonly elsewhere. And in fact, we make interpretive decisions in our translation to not just render joking, but crude joking, because it's just A word for joking that can be used positively or negatively, but I think we can get Paul's point as he contrasts it with giving thanks. As we participate in life together, we can use our words in a way that will recognize with thanksgiving the new life that we have in Christ, and that can cause flourishing as we relate to one another. Or we can use our words to distract from the goodness and kindness of God in that we can leverage against one another with our joking, our sarcasm, and our foolish talking. I think Paul's point, by bringing these things together, actions like sexual immorality and impurity, attitudes like greediness, and words like foolish talking and crude joking, by bringing these things together, I think Paul is trying to say the whole of you ought to imitate God every part of your life. No aspect is off limits because all of you is found in a new identity as a person, an image bearer of God. So whatever aspect of life you think about, your sexuality, your speech, your humor, all of it belongs to God. And so we seek to imitate God in every one of those areas. He goes on then, and you'll notice that he just takes the first list, the sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. And now he talks about individuals who are defined by these things. So this, the individual who participates in a life defined by sexual immorality, defined by impurity, and defined by greed in verse 5. says, For know and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. This is a harsh warning, isn't it? The individual who is defined by these things becomes an idolatry. We become like the first humanity who seek not to just be like God, but to replace God. And in that idolatry, much like the first humanity, we receive an exile from God's presence. We we receive exclusion from an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So Paul emphasizes this way of being that must be avoided in order for us to be truly and rightly imitators of God. And it's here in this end of verse 5 and into verse 6 that he brings a shift from talking about the identity of the church as an image bearer of God to talking about the purity of the church as the light of God. So he ends by saying these individuals don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. But verse 6, he warns them, let no one deceive you with empty arguments. Don't be like the first humanity who was deceived, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partner. Now, before we move on, I think we need to consider a couple of things here, particularly what it means to have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God and what it means to not become the partners of the disobedient. Because depending on how we hear these things, we're going to relate to this text in different ways. So, for example, if we hear the phrase, the kingdom of Christ and of God, as something that is a future reality only, so something that will be experienced in the life after our death, then we will start to think about the way we live, primarily in terms of what's going to happen to me if I die. Is my goal to avoid sexual immorality and impurity and greed, is is my goal just to get to the right kingdom in the end, get to the right place? I want to go to the good place, not the bad place. So therefore, as I go through life, I'm going to try to minimize, or at least mostly minimize, sexual immorality, impurity, and greed and, and hope that I'll have an inheritance in the kingdom on the final day. I don't think that's the way we're supposed to hear it. How do we hear that phrase, do not become their partner? Does this mean that we as a church and you as a Christian look out at the wider world and look at individuals who normalize sexual immorality and impurity and greed and decide, I'm not talking with them. I'm not going to hang out with my neighbors. I'm not going to permit my children to go to a public school. I'm not going to engage in the public workforce with my coworkers. I'm going to hopefully get a job where I can work from home and separate from them by only talking to them over Zoom. Is that what Paul is saying when he's talking about separate or don't become their partner? Once again, I don't think that's the way we're supposed to hear these things. So then, how are we to hear these two phrases? Well, as it relates to the phrase having an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God, I believe that that's a reference to the church. Now, throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul has made the case that God has shown his power in Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead and setting him above every ruler and principality and power. He's made him the head for the body, the church. He's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. So when Paul talks about the kingdom of God and of Christ, I think that this is a reference to the church present which certainly has reference to church future. But exclusion from the church present also means exclusion from the church future, certainly. So that's not what Paul's focus is on. His focus is on our life in the community of God now. So when we hear these commands to remain pure and to pursue and imitate God and avoid these sins, I think that he's talking about the way that it impacts our life in the church and as the body of Christ now. Once again, this brings us back to that notion that these sins are prohibited because they will actually serve to destroy us rather than to bring us life. So if we start to think about the fact that the idolatry does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God now, it translates this text from being something that we speak to the larger world about their future doom into a situation where we think about our own life together now and and the quality of life that we have as the church. These sins then, as they become our identity, as they move from sinful struggles which we may not find total victory over until the return of Christ, as these sins take us captive, And they start to define us. So it's not that we have sinned and confessed our sexual immorality, but that we become a sexually immoral person. Not that we have struggled with impurity and confessed it and continue to turn to Christ, but that we become defined by our impurity. Not that we struggle with greed, but we become defined by greediness and idolatry. As as we look at these things, Paul is trying to say you have a different identity and if you live in this way, it proves that you, have, you don't actually have that identity. So what I'm trying to say here is that these sins are in-breaking of death, not in-breaking of the new creation life that we've been given in Christ. As such, this is a warning primarily to the church, and it only becomes a warning to the world at large as they come into the church. So we declare these texts and these verses primarily to ourselves. What then, if this is a text for ourselves, does it mean to not become the partners of the individuals who do that? I think what Paul is saying here is that the church is a mixed community and will be until the return of Christ. There are individuals who identify as Christians, who call themselves brother or sister, and there's no way for us to know with the eyes of Christ who is a sheep and who is a goat. And so we hear the Lord speak of that final day where he'll separate the wheats from the tares. So when Paul says to not become the partners of the disobedient, I think it's a calling to test good and evil within the assembly and to react appropriately. And we have a category for this called church discipline. Now it's hard to talk about church discipline in a one-off setting like this because many have experienced situations where the church has exercised the kind of discipline that has nothing to do with with the way the Bible talks about it. It's also challenging to talk about the mixed nature of the church in a one-off setting because very often when that happens, it, it creates doubt and insecurity rather than the security that Paul intends to bring in this text. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me for just a few moments and to set aside any doubt that might creep up about the security of salvation or the security of the believer, and to set aside instances and illustrations where church discipline has been abused to try to track with what Paul is saying here. And then I hope at the end to answer or at least provide some lines of thinking that that might bring security and in confidence in Christ. Paul says in verse 7, not to become their partners with this rationale. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. So this harkens back to chapter 4 when he says that you are the new self-created according to God's likeness in all purity and righteousness of the truth, or righteousness and purity of the truth. And he continues on testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible for what makes everything visible is light. So it appears as if Paul is calling the church to look inwardly, as a body, and with the light of Christ, expose the sins and the deeds of darkness that ultimately lead to the kind of exile or exclusion from the life of the community. What would this look like? I think probably the best way in short to provide a picture of what this looks like is by appealing to Paul's own application of this theology in another place, where in 1 Corinthians 5, he addresses a situation in a church where there's a man who's living in sexual immorality, and it's virtually ignored in some sectors of the church, celebrated by others. And he calls this church to, in, in the words of the text, hand this individual over to Satan. And I think that's the, the application of his instructions here to expose the darkness. To bring it into the light, to make it visible, and to speak the truth about what God says about those actions. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, Paul emphasizes the importance of doing this with the metaphor of leaven and a loaf of bread. Just as a little bit of leaven or yeast will cause a whole loaf of bread to rise, so too does a little bit of sin in the life of the community pervade the rest of the community's life. It's in, in it, not in the way that Uh, Because one person is doing the sin, everyone else is going to start doing that sin. But in the way that every sin is a manifestation of death that works against the new life that we have in Christ. So Paul is instructing individuals here, you need to, in a sense, regulate the life of your community by shining the light of Christ on all, on yourselves, on one another. And in so doing, as he explains in 1 Corinthians 5, you keep back the judgment of God that's for unbelievers and you keep it off of the church. And this is a hard thing to understand, but Paul is essentially saying that God will judge the outsiders. Don't worry about that. Think about your own life as a community. And by Faithfully and carefully exercising church discipline, you'll maintain the purity of the church in such a way that you participate in the life of God in the work of Christ where he, like a loving husband, is seeking to present the church holy and blameless before God. So we participate in the life and work of Christ as we shine light on on one another. How does this happen practically? Practically. Well, certainly there are instances, like in 1 Corinthians 5, where there is sin in the life of the church that is unrepentant, that is clear, and and there's an individual who calls himself a brother or sister, and they must be exposed and removed from the church. That happens. We pray that it's a rare thing. We pray that as we live in life together, that God's Spirit would always be drawing us to repentance. So I don't think that we should read this text and only imagine these large scenarios, these these drastic situations. Instead, I think we should imagine the day-to-day life of the community where we exercise a mutual shepherding and shining of light on one another as, as we reveal the blind spots that each of us have. So I think what Paul is trying to push people on toward is a a way of being together where we reflect God's light onto one another's lives. We expose the sin in each other's lives. But it's not the kind of shining that consumes. It's the kind of shining that illuminates and creates a path forward and redirects that individual to Christ. So we engage with one another as a Christian community in teaching and accountability and mutual shepherding. So when we read a text like this, I, I hope to calm the fears of individuals who hear words like church discipline and think of awful situations that are messy and that have caused a lot of harm in the church. If you have experienced that, I am sorry. That, that is a hard thing. But those hard experiences do not mean that we can ignore texts like this. I think what will keep us and protect our church from abusing something like church discipline will be through the cultivation of regular discipling community with one another. If we create a culture here where we are open with one another about the realities of who we are in the struggles of our sins, and we welcome accountability for ourselves and we offer ourselves in mutual service and shepherding to one another, then we'll be able to create a culture where we push each other on towards holiness, not with an iron rod, but with love, not with a consuming fire, but with the glow of Christ on our faces as we talk to one another. So I want to encourage each of us that we are children of light and that brings with it a responsibility to relate to one another as light together, but not as the source of light ourselves. You'll notice in these texts that we're called children of light. We are not the source of light. So as we confront and disciple and relate to one another, as we confess our sins to one another, we do not do so as if we are the source of our holiness and we brandish that about as if we are God to be imitators of God reflections of his light and we need to relate to one another in that way Paul ends his comments here with a quote from Isaiah 60 he says get up sleeper and rise up from the dead and Christ will shine on you and i think that it's in these words that we find the ultimate hope for our life together is we pursue holiness and righteousness in imitation of God. This line, I think, is where the freeing reality sets in if we've missed it up to this point. We could hear these things and say that I imitate God based on my own goodness. I imitate God based on my own righteousness and holiness. But Paul cuts that off right here by appealing to Isaiah 61 and 2 where Paul says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, darkness will cover the earth, and total darkness of peoples, but the Lord will shine over you, and his glory will appeal or appear over you. So Paul's calling here is truly a calling to be light, but not the kind of calling that requires us to conjure up light in ourselves. It's the kind of calling that gives us, by the grace and gift of Christ, the very light of Christ himself that will bring us forward. So while we might feel like our entry into the church and our experience in the body of Christ is very much like those characters on The Good Place who are just trying to hide their moral failings from the shining of light or who are trying to be better, we're told here that Christ gives us resurrection power and shines his light on us. Christ, the true light of the world, shines in a way that truly exposes darkness, but not in a way that transfers us into the kingdom of darkness and consumes us, but transfers us into his own kingdom. He makes us his friends. Foreigners are made citizens, idolaters are made imitators and worshipers of the one true God, basking in the light of of Christ, and participating in the life of God. So this is our way forward. This is how we obey these commands. This is how we imitate God, not by looking to ourself, but by turning once and again to Christ, the Christ on whose grace alone we are dependent. Let's pray that Christ will make us a church that shines with his light, not because we're holier than anyone else, but because the holy Christ dwells with us.